It all started with the four tenets of osteopathic medicine. The body is a unit. The person is a unit of body, mind, and spirit. The body is capable of self-regulation, self-healing, and health maintenance. Structure and function are reciprocally interrelated. Rational treatment is based upon an understanding of the basic principles of body unity, self-regulation, and the interrelationship of structure and function. These are what sent him down the path to a career of researching, practicing, and teaching these principles. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jake Rowan. As always, before we jump in, let's listen to what one medical student thinks about OMT. Emily, PGY3. The reason why I appreciate OMT is a different modality for pain management for patients. So thank you for listening in on another episode of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast, where we share clinical experiences and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. Our guest today did his residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Michigan State University. He is currently an associate professor in the department of OMM at Michigan State University. He is the Department of OMM Clinical Clerkship Director for the MSU Comm Students and Director of Medical Education for International Programs, more specifically developing an MSU osteopathic clinic in Merida, Mexico, in the beautiful Yucatan Peninsula. He has published numerous articles, one being Implied Evidence of the Functional Role of the Rectus Capitis Posterior Muscles. So thank you, Dr. Rowan, for taking time to speak with us this evening. Thank you. How's that volume? <laughs> That's great. All yeah, right. I like it. I like it. Okay. So before we dive into your story and how you became interested in osteopathic medicine, let us, let us in on a hobby outside of the clinic. Uh, well, I, I like hiking a lot. Like I like going on walks and, and hiking. So I'd say, you know, taking my dog, going with my wife and or kids and uh, going for a hike. That's probably my favorite thing to do. Your favorite pastime. Yeah. yeah Any particular hike you can recommend to me here in the area? Well, I, I you know, Lake Lansing Park North is always a good one. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't been there, I would recommend that one. Lake Lansing Park North. Also, of course, going along just, you know, the, the kind of the river trail on campus, I think is always a nice walk, you know, different times of year. It looks, looks different. And, uh, I, I, I try to do that a couple times a week. So. Oh, nice. Wonderful. Yeah. What about a book recommendation, Dr. Rowan? Woo! So I just listened to a fantastic audio book by Kristen Hanna called the four winds. Hmm. If you Can you give us a brief summary? Yeah. So, so the thing that I really liked about this book was that although it is set in the, uh, in the Dust Bowl, in the American, you know, kind of Midwest, when we were going through the Dust Bowl, it really brings up a lot of issues that we're facing today. Uh, climate change, immigration issues, uh, I think kind of uh, the economic inequity issues that we're facing. And so I thought it was really, it was really interesting. It was, it was well-written, really good book. Hmm. You said it was written at the time of the Dust Bowl? No, 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 no. It was, it's about the time of the Dust Bowl. Like that's the story oh. like, set in the time of the American I Dust see. Bowl. Yeah. I see. I think it's a couple years old. I mean, you know, it, it, it was written within the last five years, I'm guessing. Yeah. The Four Winds. Yeah, the okay. by Kristen Hanna. Yep. I'll have to add that one to my list. Absolutely. What about a movie or documentary recommendation? So, you know, I'm one of these guys, I don't know that there are many of us out there still, but who still gets DVDs from Netflix, right? <laughs> I like to watch <laughs> because I like to watch some more obscure stuff, but uh <laughs> so, so I just watched this fantastic movie by an Iranian producer, director. And uh, so, so you have to be able to like, if you can handle subtitles, right? Because mm -hmm. it's a foreign film uh, called The Separation. 
Hmm. What's it about? Fantastic. Just outstanding. What's it about? It's a, a husband and wife and they have a daughter who's, you know, they're kind of going through this turmoil with us, you know, taking care of a sick parent and how it's affecting their relationship and, hmm. and coming to terms with, you know, <sighs> them possibly separating as well as the other kind of nuances that go along with taking care of someone who's elderly, you know? So, so I thought, I thought it was really well done. Really well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very applicable. It sounds like to our life experiences. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So you ready to dive in Dr. Rowan? Let's do it. So what what, what, what have you seen that you, what, what, what are you liking right now? Man, you know what I have been, what something that I absolutely love about this podcast is getting these movie and documentary recommendations. Last week, Dr. Jake Fisher recommended Game Changers. Okay. And when I was doing a workout on my my bicycle, I, I turned on my iPad and I I found that documentary and I watched it on YouTube. Uh-huh. And it's about professional athletes who who eat a plant-based diet primarily. Nice. And all about the biology and the studies that they have done, um, combating this idea that if you eat a whole food plant-based diet, you're not going to get enough protein. It was really, really, really interesting. So, yeah, I, I, if you haven't watched it, it's free on YouTube. <laughs> I like it. I like it. You know, my problem is I love meat, right? Like I <laughs> Yeah. You know, like, uh, like sometimes I just like my wife's a vegetarian. Right. So, so we do yeah. eat a lot of meals that are vegetarian, yeah. um, but man, I get like a craving for like a steak or a burger or pork chops yeah. or, you know, something. Yeah. So, I won't lie. I, I feel like I do that as well. Like I'll go like a month, month and a half where I'm just whole food plant based. And then I'll go to some meeting with the residents and we're eating out and yeah. like, man, a bacon cheeseburger sounds really good. Well, the thing is too, like when my wife was pregnant with the kids, like she would crave meat at times. Like, I don't think she was getting enough iron or enough protein. And so like, here's a woman who like does not like a burger. Right. And she'd be like, I got to get a hamburger right now. You know what I mean? Hmm. So Hmm. interesting. it's interesting. I, I think our bodies do try to let us know, Hey, you know, these are things we need, you know, and yeah. I, don't, I don't, by any means, game changers I'm, sounds interesting. I like to watch it, but I think yeah. sometimes our cravings are telling us, you know, you need something that this has. Yeah. Kind of listening to your body. Right. But then I wonder, you know, how much do those cravings come in or come from our experiences, our education growing up, what we're accustomed to eating, you know? Yeah. And that could be, that, that, that's absolutely possible. I, I you know, yeah. I don't know. I grew up down the block from a butcher shop. And so <laughs> we had like an account there, you know what I mean? So like, I don't remember having a meal where we didn't have, meat. you know, like that would be really weird in my house if we did not have your dad would just say, Hey Jake, go, uh, go run down the block and pick up the pork yeah, chops. For I, actually, <laughs> my, my parents were divorced. So it was my mom, but yes, absolutely. Okay. Hey, you know, stop at Bob, the butcher shops, you know, when you get home, grab, yeah the whatever yeah or you know you name it and sure sure dr rowan i'm gonna switch gears here i want to hear about how you became interested in osteopathic medicine all right well i think it was you know i don't think this is a totally uncommon story but uh so i was in college i went to miami university in oxford ohio And I think I was in my start of my junior year, maybe end of my sophomore year. And I went to one of these medical school fairs that that schools offer sometimes. And I'm walking around and there were, you know, Ohio State was there and Case Western was there. And and then there was Ohio University's College of Osteopathic Medicine. And and right down on their table, they, they were talking to some other people, right? But they had like a little handout and, you know, it basically said, you know, 
what is osteopathic medicine? And it, and it talked about the osteopathic principles, you know, kind of those five osteopathic principles. And I was like, wow, you know, right on. That's exactly what, you know, I believe. And I want to go to a medical school where they believe this information too, and where they teach this and I can be around other like-minded people. So that, that's what really got me kind of uh, interested. It was, it was definitely the principles. I had never had any manipulation that I remember that I know of at, at the time. So it had nothing to do with manual medicine. It was more the osteopathic philosophy. And why did that philosophy resonate with you? Well, I think there's a simplicity about it that's beautiful and elegant. And I've always been interested in the human body. And so I think that really struck a chord, you know, talking about the body has its own intrinsic healing mechanisms and how our role as physicians is to help those along talking about the integration of structure and function, you know, looking at the person as more than just, you know, organ systems, but as a complete unit and, and the person is a unit of body, mind, and spirit. I think those are, those are really strong principles. And, and I think that, you know, they struck a chord in me that I, I still think is, is powerful and I still try to live by today. Were there any experiences growing up where you realized this healing power of your own body or was there some life experience or something that your parents taught you that made these principles resonate? I mean, my, my, my dad was always very athletic. And so he would take us when we, before my parents got divorced and even after they did, he would take us to the gym with him. Right. So he'd be playing basketball and my brother and I would be, you know, monkeying around and like, you know, the, the mats or whatever they had, you know, playing with balls at the other end of the court or just, you know, kind of uh, staying active and, my brother is a lot more athletic than I am. And, and so I think just kind of, you know, just being involved in athletics and seeing how that can change your body and your mindset. I think, I think that was pretty powerful too. Okay. And then how did you come across this idea? I want to become a, a physician, a doctor. Yeah. So, so initially in school, I thought, um, you know, maybe physical therapy. My major was exercise science, which is kind of like kinesiology at some places. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, you know, possibly, um, possibly physical therapy school, possibly medical school, but I was leaning more towards, you know, kind of physical therapy because of, because of the more hands-on type approach, because I hadn't really learned about osteopathy at that point. And so when I went to that medical school fair and I, I learned about osteopathy, I was like, oh, okay, well, let's see what happens. I'm going to apply to both. And, and it turns out that that, you know, the year that I was applying physical therapy school was possibly harder to get into than medical school. So, um, so, you know, I, I, I didn't end up applying to physical therapy school. I just applied to medical school and I was lucky enough to get in and kind of thankful for that right now. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're you're in you're at Michigan State. Correct. And you go to OMM lab or o, yeah, OMT lab for the first time. You have you've never had manipulation done to you. You know what? So so it started actually before that, right? So so I'm there for orientation. You know what I mean? Like I, I walk into orientation, there were 125 students at the time. And, uh, the orientation we had, like, I think it was like a, a week, maybe, you know, five days of orientation and, uh, you would break up, you know, the, in between like big group meetings, they would break us up into small sessions. And one of the small sessions was, I'm, it was me and I think maybe 10 or 15 other people went into a little classroom. There was an OMT table and Dr. Bill Pintal who was a, a teacher here at MSU for a long time. He was a family medicine doc. He was a gentleman farmer. He was, this guy was unbelievable. Um, but, but he, he was kind of leading this group and 
and I just happened to be kind of sitting in the front row and he, you know, said, Hey, would you mind coming up here? And I got down on the table and he did a suboccipital release. Right. And it was just like, it felt like heaven. I'm like, Oh my God, this is awesome. You know? And, and I, I thought to myself, this feels great. I, I hope I can learn how to do this and I can hope I can help other people feel this good, you know? So really Bill Pintal, it was like a magic moment during orientation where I was like, I've got to try to learn this. And then just out of circumstance, and again, this was so bizarre, but um, one of my buddies was dating this girl who was in a wedding and one of her friends needed a date. So she asked me, you know, hey, would you mind going as a date with my friend? And I was like, yeah, sure. And it was to a woman named, the wedding was for a woman named Jane Ward, who is a, a neurologist here at MSU. She was a classmate of mine, but it was to her wedding at the time, who I didn't know. And her dad, Bob Ward, again, was another fantastic manual medicine practitioner. And so, so after this experience with Bill Pintall, I asked Dr. Ward, I was like, hey, Dr. Ward, you know, do you mind if I just come and shadow you in clinic just to see what it's like? And he was more than gracious and just let me go into the rooms, let me put my hands on patients. He would, you know, kind of guide me. And, and really, it, you know, those two experiences really just started me off on like, you know, I, I want to learn as much as this is possible. And that was before medical school even started? Yeah. So, so the wedding was before medical school started. The wedding was like, it was at Christmas time. It was like December of my senior year of college. Jane Ward gets married to her college boyfriend, right? And I was invited up to the wedding. <laughs> and, 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 and that's where I met Dr. Ward. And right. So, so, so then after I got into medical school, I got this, you know, this, fantastic experience during orientation with Bill Pintal. I call up Dr. Ward, you know, I see him in the hallway and I'm like, Hey, Dr. Ward, you know, I'm now in medical school here. I, I, you know, I met you at Jane's wedding. You know, we have a mutual friend. Um, would it be okay if I come to your clinic and shadow you? And he was like, absolutely. You know, come on in. Here's when I'll be in clinic, blah, blah, blah. And, and it was, it was great. Mm -hmm. It was great. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's like the the stars kind of aligned for you, they right? Totally aligned. Totally hmm. So you were all in when you got to that first day of OMT. You were like, "Oh, I want to learn this." Gung ho. Yeah, completely yeah. all about it. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I I, I had uh, like I said, I had never experienced manual medicine myself before orientation. But that kind of one experience with Dr. Pintal really just like, it was like a light switch going off where I was like, I know this other stuff is, is, you know, interesting, but, you know, biochem and anatomy, it was cool stuff. But it was like the, the practical side of being a physician, you know, the touching the patient, the listening to the heart and lungs and all that kind of stuff was where I was like, I want to be as good as this stuff as possible. And, and the hands-on stuff absolutely was right in the forefront of something I wanted to learn how to do and, and try to do well. So your enthusiasm for OMT really never wavered during medical school? No, no. It, it actually increased throughout. I mean, I would say, you know, so then, you know, having that experience with Dr. Ward, okay, then I'm paying more attention in class, right? And, and then, you know, I kind of start talking to Dr. Greenman and Dr. Lon Hoover, and I get involved with the, at the time it was called the uh, SAAO, the Student Osteopathic, you know, Student Academy, American Academy of Osteopathy, which is like, you know, a student group where they practice OMM. And so getting involved with them and, and you know, just, just doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you have any experience that you would like to share with Dr. Ward, since you mentioned him as well as Dr. Pintal? You know, Dr. Pintal, th there are so many great mentors that, that I, you know, I would be remiss to, to single any one person out because I've had so much good fortune of being around these great people. Um, but, but, you know, 
Dr. Pintall was amazing. He was so kind, so gentle, and and so open with his teaching. And, and so was Dr. Ward and Dr. Greenman and Dr. Hoover and Dr. Al Jacobs, who has you know since passed away, and and uh, and even people you know at the time like Mark Google, who's who's one of the clinicians that I work with as a partner. You know, just really great people who are willing to share what they know and to be open and generous with you know helping students. I, it was it was a really wonderful experience. But there's no because these these are names that I've heard so much about Bob Ward. Phil Greenman. Um, I'm sure the listeners would like to hear a story if you have one. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, if not, we can move on. But. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, there are plenty, plenty of great stories about these guys. The, the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, and, and Fred Mitchell Jr. too. I mean, Fred Mitchell Jr. is an amazing guy who, you know, was just, again, a that, that if you ever have time to, cause he's still alive. If you ever have time to talk with him, I highly recommend it cause he's fascinating. So, so I'm, I'm at one of these little, uh, you know, study groups with Fred Mitchell Jr. This is kind of like after hours type of thing. You know, it's not a formal class and, and, and there's probably about four or five of us. And so I go, you know, well, Dr. Mitchell, you know, what's your approach to the patient thinking that, okay, he's got this dogmatic routine that he does. And he goes, well, I got to tell you, I absolutely hate routine. And so, <laughs> so he's like, sometimes I start at the pelvis. Sometimes I start at the head. Sometimes I start at the pelvis and then jump to the head. Sometimes, you know, I mean, so as a student, it was one of those deals where you're like, holy shit, man, how am I ever going to learn this stuff? Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the same was kind of true about, about Dr. Bob Ward too. I mean, this guy was very, very intuitive okay. and he would tell you like, he would want you to think that he was, he was not, but, but, but I don't know how he did it, but he would, you know, just start off working some at, you know, for some reason, starting off in an area. And at the time as a student, I wasn't totally sure why. Um, but then all of a sudden he'd be moving things around and, and just everything would kind of unwind on this patient. And, and it was impressive. He, his probably primary technique that, that I, when I was working with him that he used was myofascial release. And so he, it was just impressive to, to watch him work and, and deal with patients. And Whereas Dr. Greenman, Phil Greenman was almost the opposite of those two. And so he was very kind of like uh, mechanical, you know what I mean? It was almost like an engineer, right? Okay. You start at the pelvis, you do this, you do this, you work your way up. You know what I mean? It was, it was very mechanical. And, and I think as a, as a student that helped, right. Having that kind of formal, background of going okay this is where you start then you go here then you go here it was very comfortable as a student it gave you parameters whereas people like fred mitchell jr and bob ward who you know they were phenomenal manipulators but but in the clinic they were great to work with but in a classroom it it was tough because they went off on a lot of tangents and it was sometimes hard to kind of follow their train Sure. So that, that was interesting, kind of dealing with those personalities. And, and then the other guy that was really unique, too, was, uh, was Johnson. And, and he would use this percussion technique. So he did a lot of uh, uh, indirect technique. He used like a, um, almost like a strain, counter strain, uh, indirect technique. And, and he would percuss your back to kind of find the... Uh, kind of find the areas of somatic dysfunction, which was really interesting. Unique. Yeah. Yeah. So he would take his hands and kind of just, you'd, you'd be standing or sitting and he would tap like the thumb on one side of the, of the spinous process and his fingers on the other and go up and down and kind of percuss to kind of feel the, how it would resonate. And, and that's what he used. So, you know, it was, it was really interesting, you know, work, working with these, these yeah. fantastic manipulators. And were you working with them at the beginning of your medical training or was this more taking place in your 
third and fourth year of medical school? It was during my uh, first two years. Uh, and then during my third and third and fourth year, I did some rotate. Well, actually, so I did this thing called at the time, it was called like a graduate assistantship. Um, I think at some schools, they called it like a OMM fellowship type of deal. Right. So I extended my curriculum from four, the traditional four years to five years. And so I, I, I kind of had a extra second year in there where I was helping to teach in the lab and helping to teach in, in the uh, OMM lab and, and also kind of the clinical skills lab. Um, and that was really great working, working with them, you know, kind of teaching and doing that. And then, and then during my third and fourth year, I did a couple rotations uh, where I knew I would have time to, to work with, to work with these guys in clinic. And, and that was, that was fantastic. Sure. So now Dr. Rowan, you're, you're the director of the clerkship for the MSU, the clinical clerkship for the MSU Com medical students. You yourself, when you were in the clinic in your third and fourth year, did you have some experiences in the ICU or the ER or any other rotation where you were able to use those, those skills, those manual medicine skills to help a patient? Yeah, absolutely. I, again, I think I was really lucky because my third and fourth year was done at a hospital at the time, which was called Metropolitan Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it was a traditional osteopathic hospital. So although we had a mix of MDs and DOs, it was primarily osteopathic. And so, you know, these are people who could speak the same language as you. And I think that's, that was a huge change, which I've had to kind of um, grapple with, with our current third and fourth year students. Most of their institutions are primarily MD MD institutions. So how do you communicate what you know and what you can do for patients to someone who doesn't have that same background in, in the, in language and skill set, right? Sure. So, so I, I think, you know, having the same language and the same kind of skill set that my, that, that my supervising physicians did at Metro they were, they were very, you know, open to, to saying, you know, Hey, if you want to treat this patient with manual medicine, by all means, you know, and they've got, you know, they just had surgery and, and you don't want them to get some atelectasis by all means, you know, go in there, do your rib raising, do your lymphatics patient comes in, who's, you know, who's got an ileus and you've got some techniques you think may be able to help that ileus get things moving by all means, go ahead, you know, and, and even just, you know, other, other, patients who, who were coming in and, and, you know, had surgery, but now had neck pain or back pain from, from being, you know, laid up. So I I was very fortunate in that I, I really did not encounter any problems with me doing manual medicine until I started doing some of my military rotations, because I had a military scholarship for medical school. So when I, when I started going to the military hospitals, which were much more MD based, that's when I kind of felt that there was this little bit of a, uh, of a, of a gap that needed to be bridged. Were you not able to use your manual medicine skills as much in those hospitals then? No, I, I was able to, to use it, but again, I think it goes back to communication. You had to communicate in very, simple terms and in terms that our MD colleagues understood to allow them to allow you to be able to do those things that, that I think we as DO sometimes take for granted. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and that was a real eye opener. I mean, that was a great experience because it let me know that, you know, number one, my training was as good or better than any of theirs. But also there is still, or there was still a, um, some discrimination, you know, about, about MD from MDs towards DOs and about what we could or couldn't do or or why we should or shouldn't do things. Did you, did you have any experiences where they kind of talked down to, or someone talked down to? Yeah, Yeah, for sure. But, but specifically regarding your, OMT, the, the manual therapies 
that, yes. that you were potentially offering to patients. Yes. Yeah. Like, so for instance, I, I'm one of my first rotations uh, during my internship and this was, you know, at triple army medical center, I was on orthopedics. And so you're seeing a lot of fractures. You're seeing a lot of, you know, uh, broken bones or healing bones or that type of thing. And, you know, a lot of post-surgical patients and, and just talking to some of the residents who were MDs and, you know, I'm like, Hey, well, I, I think, you know, this patient just came out of surgery. They've had some issues with their rib cage or sternum. I think, you know, maybe doing some rib raising, getting things moving might help their lymphatics and, and, and also, you know, allow them to get things draining, you know, decrease the edema here. And they'd be like, yeah, I know you guys think that that works, but I don't, I don't feel comfortable with that right now. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- th- there was those type of things and and, 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 especially with cranial stuff, you know, dealing with patients with, uh, you know, Hey, you mind if I check their cranium and see how well things are moving there? That was a big source of contention. And as well as the sacrum looking at sacral movement in the pelvis you know you get someone who's had an injury to their knee or their hip or their ankle they're not walking correctly you know i want to start at the pelvis and make sure that that alignment's you know good and then work my way down and they're like you know yeah i know you guys talk about the pelvis moving and rotating and stuff but you know i don't believe that so and and what was that experience like for you did that make you doubt manual medicine or did that No, I I think it made me learn that, you know, even though these people were really smart, I mean, these were really bright clinicians, they were great surgeons, they were, they were, they were good people, but, but also in some areas, they were ignorant to what they didn't know, you know, so I think, I think that it made me say, okay, hey, I have to keep an open mind, and I have to understand they weren't trained in this. So I need to do a better job of kind of explaining. And I had seen so much of the good effects, you know, so much of how patients benefited from manual medicine that it didn't dissuade me. It just made me think, okay, you know, this MD colleague of mine needs more of an education. And and at the time it wasn't my place. I mean, I wasn't in a place of authority or, or I didn't have the the language skills uh, to, to be able to really talk to them on that level. But looking back at it now, that clearly is, is what needed to happen. Sure. So you get to the end of your fourth year, the end of your fellowship, fifth year of medical school, and it comes time to choose a residency. You choose physical medicine and rehabilitation. So walk us through that. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, after my fourth year or fifth year, uh, when I graduated, I went into the military. So I, I had a military scholarship. So I did a transitional year internship at Tripler Army Medical Center. And then after that year, I did a, uh, a GMO tour, which is a general medical officer tour. So I was like uh, kind of like a f- uh, family practitioner or a general practitioner for a couple years before I did residency. And that experience really helped me helped to solidify going into physical medicine and rehab. During medical school, I loved all my rotations. There wasn't one rotation that I wasn't like, oh, this is great. You know what I mean? I, I had a really good experience on, on pretty much every rotation. Uh, I do remember, though, working with Dr. Greenman at one time and, and, and talking to him in, during my fourth year and saying, you know, you know I really want to continue to use my manual medicine skills if I was thinking about residency, what would you, you know, what would you recommend or what would you, you know, think about? He goes, well, if I had to do it again, I would do physical medicine and rehabilitation. Was he, was he family medicine? No, he was actually trained as a radiologist. Oh, really? Well, well, so, so, you know, at the time he was going through, it was, it was kind of like by, you know, who you're hanging out with. Right. And so, so, so he did have like a family medicine clinic, but he also had a lot of radiology training. And, and so I I don't know what he considered himself, but, but at times I've heard him say, yeah, I was kind of trained in radiology and other times it was kind of like he was a, a general practitioner. So. Now, was there not a osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine or OMM residency at MSU at that time? At what time? 
at the time you were going to decide what residency you wanted to choose? There was, there was one. Yeah. It, it had started, um, when I was a fourth year medical student, they, they had their first cohort of residents. So it was a guy named Brad Sadler and, and a woman, um, um, Janine Talty. And so, so I worked with them. I, so I did a, you know, a rotation with them and, and Dr. Ward was their residency director. And I worked with them and Brad and Janine are great. They're great people. They're great practitioners. And then Dr. DeStefano was also kind of in there, kind of coming up behind them. So they, I think, God, I think it was like a three-year program at the time. So she might've been an intern or something like that at, at the time. Okay. So it's really Dr. Greenman's advice. Hey, if I had to do it again, I would choose PM&R. That's yeah. kind of what well, and then, and then, that so, residency. So, so when I did, when I did my general medical officer experience, I really liked, you know, kind of that family medicine experience. However, I thought to myself, you know, the best part of my day is, is dealing with these musculoskeletal injuries and musculoskeletal problems. And so as much as I think it's important to treat diabetes and high blood pressure and thyroid disease and all that kind of stuff, you know, I really liked dealing with, with the musculoskeletal system the best. And so that's when I said, okay, if I'm going to do this day in and day out, um, I think PM&R is probably going to be the best for me. I see. And, and, and during, during medical school, I also did a couple of rotations in PM&R. So, so I, and I had shadowed Dr. Mike Andary and uh, Dr. Michael Whiting, who was at MSU at the time. And, and again, they were really gracious. Dr. Mike Andary, he's an MD and there's no bigger cheerleader for DOs and osteopathic medicine than him. He, he's been a, he's been one of those people that, you know, although he doesn't claim to, you know, uh, have any training in hands-on manual medicine, he does appreciate what, what can be done. And he, he really allows people who are working with him, who are DOs to kind of do what they can do. And, and, and that's, he, he's a, he's a really good advocate for our profession. Yeah. I have worked with Dr. Andary. I did a PM&R rotation as well at MSU and he, he was very, very supportive of all the practitioners who were using OMT and also very inquisitive. Like he wanted to learn more about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. So now, Dr. Rowan, you are working part time. I'm taking a big leap here. Um, you're working part time in the MSU OMM clinic and the rest of your time is spent as director of the clerkship. Yeah. The and, and, you know, I do a little research and a little administrative stuff, too. So okay. you know, as an academic physician, there's kind of four parts to the job. Okay. One is seeing patients, you know, as a physician. Number two is teaching. Number three is research. And number four is administrative duties. So if you go into academic medicine, those are kind of the four things you got to kind of, kind of do. Can you, are you able to walk us through some of the research projects you have going on? Right. So, so one just got funded. A couple are coming to an end, I hope. Um, and one just got funded, a new one. And again, this goes back to what you commented earlier on is research on the uh, suboccipital muscles and the cervical spine. Specifically, this project is going to be working with patients who have cervicogenic headaches. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get uh, a cohort of patients who have been diagnosed with cervicogenic headache. We're going to get an MRI of their suboccipital area. And, and believe it or not, one of the things we hope to show um, during this is that it's worthwhile to image that area. Most, most practitioners don't realize that when you order a cervical spine MRI, they don't get those suboccipital areas. They don't get up to kind of C1 and, and the occiput and, mm -hmm. and they, and they, if you order a head MRI, they don't get down to that area. So it's kind of this no man's land where they don't really comment on it unless you specifically order an MRI, which asks them to look at that area and those muscles. 
And why is that area so important for a patient who has cervicogenic headaches? Well, there's been some studies done that have shown that there's what's called a myodural bridge. So the dura of the head actually attaches onto some of those uh, suboccipital muscles like the rectus capitis posterior minor, rectus capitis posterior major. And so if you have someone who has an injury in that area or who has somatic dysfunction in that area, and they have then disuse of those muscles, and let's say they have disuse atrophy of those muscles or fatty infiltration of those muscles, how does that affect that dural attachment that may be there? And it's disuse atrophy because of the inhibition caused by the somatic dysfunction. Correct. Possibly, or, 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 or other reasons, you know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I was having a conversation with Dr. DeStefano about that today. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so, so that's, one of the, that's one of the research projects that's coming up. Two that I'm finishing, one is hopefully going to get published within the next uh, uh, year or so, um, but we just finished it up with a, with a resident who graduated, Dr. Jared Ham-Ying, and that was on looking at p- patients who are referred to our manual medicine clinic. What do they actually know about OMM, and what were they told about OMM before they came? So trying to figure out how much education do we need to provide to our patients, but also possibly to our, our referring providers. Can I ask what were some of the ideas that people had coming into the clinic about what OMM is? You know, most people didn't actually know that was kind of the biggest group was they, they weren't sure. Um, They weren't really told much by their referring provider other than that hopefully this could help with their pain. So pain was probably the biggest factor why patients were coming to the clinic. Yeah. And and to help to alleviate that. So, um, so so it was, you know, interesting to kind of look at, at, at what people know, what they don't know and how we can maybe educate not only our patients, but also providers to say, Hey, we can offer not only pain relief, but hopefully improvement in function for these patients who have common musculoskeletal disorders like headaches, neck pain, back pain, hip pain, Mm -hmm. shoulder pain, those type of things. Yeah, absolutely. And and then the last uh, study, which um, I'm hoping to get published soon, um, which was fairly recent, was on language skills of our students. So Believe it or not, there's been no research done on what language skills, if any, our medical students have. So we don't know if they speak Hindi. We don't know if they speak Arabic. We don't know if they speak Spanish. We don't know anything about their language skills. And so when we're talking about, you know, which which has come up more, this diversity, equity, and inclusion, if we're having physicians go out into areas where there is a, let's say a large Spanish speaking population, God, it would be nice if those patients had a physician who had those language skills, you know, it's not necessary, but I think it could be helpful. And like, you know, the Detroit area has one of the largest Arabic speaking populations, you know, outside of the middle East. And so if we had clinicians who we knew had those language skills, would it be good to put them in areas where there are patients who have those language skills? So this looked at what language skills our, our uh, students have. How important, Dr. Rowan, is research in propagating and continuing osteopathic medicine in the future? I really don't think it's that important. Really, but this is what you do day in and day out, right? Well, as an academic physician, I think it's important, right? You know what I mean? I think that if if you want to be in academics, I think you should be doing some type of scholarly work, right? I think it's part of the gig. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. You know, stay in the clinic, right? You know, so, so because I think the biggest thing osteopathic physicians have to offer are are their skills with patients. I mean, patient care is, is the number one, 
Re research is great, right? But people were coming to DOs well before we had any research because what we do works. Do you think that those, our MD colleagues, my brother's an MD, yeah. would be more accepting if they had more evidence-based medicine, meaning Absolutely. more research supporting yes. Yes. our work? Yes. So I, I think it's great for us to talk to our MD colleagues. It's great for us to talk to our you know, insurance companies if we have research that shows you know, oh, we do this and we get this outcome, right? But quite honestly, it's up to the patients. The patients are going to decide if you, if you treat them and you make them feel better, whatever that means to them, they're going to come back and see you. So I don't care if you have a ton of research or if you have no research, because there are first and second year students out there who have clinical skills and they can go in that student clinic and, and make patients feel better. And they don't know anything about research. You know what I mean? So to me, I think research is great and, and I'm glad to do it. And I think it's important to, to, for us to be able to talk to our, like I said, our MD colleagues and insurance companies. But as far as uh, from a patient care standpoint, I don't think it matters. I see. What would you say to an allopathic physician who said, hey, Dr. Rowan, I mean, what you do as a manual therapist, it's pretty similar to what a chiropractor does. I would agree. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that we do which are almost identical. But again, I think it goes back to osteopathic philosophy. I think our osteopathic approach, the philosophy behind which we're seeing the patient is the key difference. We are fully licensed physicians. We can prescribe medication. We can perform surgery. We can you know, get imaging mm -hmm. studies and lab studies. And I think we are taking a more complete view of the patient than just someone who can only do manual medicine. But most manual therapists that I've worked with, I mean, sometimes we'll order imaging, but I don't see them ordering labs very often. Or... Right. And I, I think that, I mean, I think that's why we're better, quite frankly. I mean, it, it, so, so let, let's just talk about let's not talk about chiropractic, but let's talk about physical therapists, right? So there's a lot of physical therapists who, you know, are learning manual medicine. Okay. That's right. And in, in the state of Michigan, we have, um, what, what, what they call, you know, you don't need a physician's, uh, you don't need a physician's prescription to go see a physical therapist. Okay. They have direct access is what it's called. So if you have a condition where, it may be beneficial for you to have had an x-ray or labs to figure out what's actually going on first. They don't have that ability to do that. You know? So again, I, I think I like the fact that we are a more complete, I think, physician. I think we have something our MD colleagues lack in that we learn these manual medicine skills from, from day one of school. And I think we have things that our chiropractic or physical therapy uh, colleagues lack. And it, it is those fundamentals of, you know, Western medicine, dealing with imaging studies, labs, basic pharmacology, and, and, you know, some of the biochemistry that goes along with that. Yeah. I have talked and worked with some physical therapists who say, you know, if we get a referral from a physician that asks us to work on a specific area like the pelvis, I'm pretty limited just to working on that area and strengthening that area in and around the pelvis. I can't really go up to the paraspinals, the, the trapezius, the rectus spina. I need to stay right there in that area. Yeah. And, and, and I feel for them because a lot of them are really skilled pr practitioners that absolutely given the right parameters. Um, I think they could, you know, provide a lot of help with the patients. And, and, and I think, the good ones try to find ways around that, you know what I mean? Uh, around those rules, yeah. but yes, they, they, they can be limited. Sure. And another question I had for you, Dr. Rowan was about the, the MSU com clinic that you started in Medida, Mexico. How did that come about? Wow. That, that's a, uh, that's a really long question, but I'll try like, to give you the like, short run. Do we need to have another podcast episode <laughs> yeah. for this? We, we might. It depends how long you like these to go. 
Uh, <laughs> Usually around an hour. <laughs> okay. I'll try to keep it short then. So, so uh, Michigan State University has some unique advantages compared to other osteopathic schools and, and some other MD schools in that we have a uh, kind of a, a unique unit called the Institute for Global Health. And the director of the Institute for Global Health um, several years ago was a gentleman named Dr. Reza Nasiri. And Dr. Nasiri, um, one of his greatest qualities was that he was a huge proponent for just going out and banging on doors and saying, hey, I'm here representing MSU and this is what we have to offer. Are you interested in partnering with us? And so he, he went down to Merida kind of on the uh, advice or the whim of, of, a, of a guy who's in speech and language pathology. And, and he, he met with the state government of the state of Yucatan and kind of proposed, hey, you know, I'm with MSU. You know, what are your thoughts? And they were somewhat interested. And so he convinced the dean at the time, Dean William Strample, to go down and take a look. And Dean Strample got there. And again, he had the foresight to be able to say, you know, this could be a great place for our students to see things they're not going to see in the United States. Or maybe before they see things, you know, in the United States, certain diseases and disease processes. But also they'll be able to do things here that they may not have access to in the United States. And so, so when Dr. Nasiri left, Dr. Bill Cunningham kind of took over his role as the director of the Institute for Global Health. And, and um, since then, Dr. Um, and Andy Amaflatano has taken over as the dean of the college. And both of them have been really supportive of continuing the work down in, down in Merida. But it, but it was those initial two, Dr. Reza Nasiri and, and Dr. Dean Strample, who were the ones who thought that you know, this could be a great place for education. And then when I went down there, I kind of had three goals in mind. And I, and I, I think that we're continuing with these three goals. And, and the first is number one, educational exchange between MSU and our partners in Yucatan, you know, back and forth. Um, and number two is collaborative research. And number three is outreach for the College of Osteopathic Medicine, for the university, for Michigan State University, but also for the osteopathic profession because DOs do not have practice rights in, in, in Mexico. And I think that, you know, this kind of opens the door for them to kind of see what we can do and to see that we are, you know, good practitioners and, and, um, and good partners. And when you say practice rights, so we can perform manual therapy, we just can't prescribe medications or... I don't think so. I don't think we, you couldn't get a license to do anything in Mexico with, with an osteopathic. There, there's no osteopathic licensure route. You would, have to, you would have to go back to medical school. So what is Dr. Travis Gordon doing down there? Then? Dr. Travis Gordon had like, so, and this is what I had and Dr. Donahue and, and all the other... MSU COM members who've gone down before me, we have gotten privileges through the state government, through the state of Yucatan to provide uh, clinical uh, expertise and, and practice in the state run hospital. I see. So, so we're not able to put up a shingle anywhere. We're not able to work in the federal hospital, but we can work in the state hospital for in, indigent care. Do you see that changing anytime soon with the federal government? Well, yeah, I think so. Because since we've been at, at the state hospital, we've made good ties with our friends at there and they want us to come and work there as well. So, you know, but we, but we say to them, Hey, listen, we'd love to, we, you know, we'd love to have more people down here, but you got to grant us some, some privileges. Right. And so we kind of need to get our foot in the door. And, and I think this is this is where you start. 
Sure. Yeah, that's that's incredible. It's kind of hard for me to believe that in Mexico, DOs do not have medical privileges. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Dr. Rowan. And, and, and I don't think chiropractors do either. I, I don't think you can be a chiropractor in Mexico. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't any. Right. You know, I mean, if you want to put up a shingle and, and risk, you know, legal action, that's fine. But but I, I think I think the only people that can that can practice medicine there are MDs. I see. OK. Yeah. So kind of winding down here, we got a few more minutes. What advice would you give to osteopathic medical students who are going to the OMT lab and they're dragging their feet? They're not really interested or they're kind of on the fence, what, what advice would you have for those students? Well, I think there's more to being a great osteopathic physician than manipulation, right? So, I mean, there are some people who are great runners and there's others who like to run, but they're not very good, right? You know what I mean? But there are other people who can play music or sing wonderfully. Right. And there are other people like, I wish I could sing, but I have a terrible voice. So, you know, I mean, I can appreciate good music though. So, so I think it goes back to the osteopathic philosophy. I think, you know, you can be an outstanding osteopathic physician. If you, even if you don't like, or, or, or don't do manual medicine, as long as you recognize that, Hey, I know that there's a problem here. And I know that my colleagues who do do or can do manual medicine may be able to help with, and I'm going to be able to refer that patient along. So to me, you know, I, I think going into that lab and having an open mind and being able to say, yeah, okay, this might not be for me, but I'm going to learn this just like I would learn cardiology or, or how to listen to a heart or how to listen to a lungs or how to assess an abdomen you know, I'm going to learn how to assess this musculoskeletal system, even though I might not be the greatest at it, even though I might not like it, but I'm going to be able to recognize when there's a problem and to be able to get patient to, to the help that they need and deserve. Absolutely. Um, lastly, do you have any plugs that you would like to make help on research projects or so, so we opened up, uh, we asked for some volunteers for this research project that I was telling you about with the cervical spine, and we were inundated with students. So, so, so I, I, unfortunately, I don't have enough projects uh, for okay. the students that are interested, which, which I think is a good problem to have. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of students out there who are interested, and I would be happy, hold on one sec, this phone's ringing. Um, I, I would be happy to uh, talk to you know, students that are interested in manual medicine. I think most of the physicians in our group are really open and, and welcoming to students who may have an interest in, in manual medicine or in osteopathy. And I would encourage them just to, you know, talk to a DO and hang, hang out with one. And is there any way that people can get in touch with you? I think the best way is probably through, you know, the uh, MSU email or calling the clinic, contacting the clinic. Okay. Yeah, that, that's usually the easiest way. So, so what made you want to do this podcast? Yeah, it's a great question, Dr. Rowan. I, you know, just starting out residency. So the podcast has been going on for a year. I'm coming to the end of my first year. Uh -huh. I wanted to try to understand how different practitioners actually use manual medicine, the clinical benefits that they've seen, the techniques that they like, and learn from them. Mm -hmm. It was really kind of a selfish reason, but right. I thought, great reason, man. you know, I can do this and I can publish it and people can listen to it and hopefully benefit from it as much as I do and have. Right. It's right. been really fun. I've met some incredible physicians from all over the United States. Um, and it's just kind of fun to meet them in person at convocation in Orlando yeah. back in March. So, yeah, this is something that I plan on doing for hopefully many years to come. Well, I think it's great, too, to capture some of these uh, stories. You know, I mean, I, yeah. think that, uh, I don't know if you've ever listened to NPR, StoryCorps or anything like that, but those are fascinating. 
you know, or, or the Moth News Hour, you know, or the Moth Radio Show where they talk about people's true life stories. It's just really impactful, I think, to hear, you know, some of this history and to, to understand why people do what they do. It's, it's, yeah. it's I think it's a great service and thank, thank you for doing it. Yeah, absolutely, Dr. Owen. It's been so much fun. Um, speaking of that, yeah, another physician told me the same thing. They're, they were very thankful for the opportunity to capture some of these stories. Dr. Sarah Saxton worked with, um, oh my goodness, I'm blanking on the name right now, Dr. Fulford. Uh-huh, sure. And so she was telling a lot of stories about Dr. Fulford and was just grateful for the opportunity to kind of leave these for future osteopaths. Um, so, yeah been it's been it's been a blast yeah and, and i think that you know like i said the, the more you can talk to some of these people like i know bob Ward, he's still alive he still lives in the lansing area and and he's his mind is sharp as a tack so if you have time to talk with him you know he'd be a great person to talk to fred yeah. Mitchell jr is still around and, and so there's some really interesting people that are around and i think it'd be great to kind of hear their stories yeah, I will definitely try to reach out to them. We've got uh, Dean Amalfitano coming up here in a few weeks. Awesome. So Great. Excited yes. about that one as well. Absolutely. So, well, thanks, Dr. Rowan, for your time. Thank it was you. An awesome conversation. And uh, we'll see you in the clinic here in the near future. Sounds great. Take care, my friend. Okay. Thank you. Bye. For some people, the stars align and they know this is their career path. For Dr. Rowan, this was osteopathic medicine. I really enjoyed our conversation and the stories he shared about some of the great osteopathic physicians, such as Dr. Phil Greenman, Dr. Bob Ward, and Dr. Bill Pintall. Hope you guys did as well. If you would like to reach out to Dr. Rowan, you will find his email in the show notes. As always, like the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. See you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.